to summarize one of the most powerful teachings on reconciliation I heard many, many years ago as a teenager at Hope Chapels. It's Dan's teaching, and it's um, one of the very few sermons I remember from 30 years ago, so it's worth hearing again. <laughs> um, second quiz. This, this particular retreat is entitled The Third Arena of Reconciliation. I'm wondering who can remember what the three arenas of reconciliation are we discussed last time. Ooh, Jenny took notes. I I took notes. You've got you get bonus points yeah, for that. Very good. Good job. <laughs> so we're going to talk about we're going to talk about brother and brother in more detail since we kind of um, focused on God and man and man and woman last time. Last question. Um, Last time I offered at least one solution to um, the hostility that comes from our jealousy and suspicion. Anybody remember one, one solution to jealousy, hostility? Ah, see this? <laughs> Thomas knows. What is it, Thomas? It was from the parable of the vineyard uh, mm -hmm. and the tenants who, the workers who came late received the same wage, which made the workers who were earlier jealous. The solution is to, is to focus on what the wage is. The wage is eternal life. God gives us eternal life. So why would you be jealous? How could you receive more than that? Another way. It's the same wage as much as can be given. Another way to put it would be um, to go back to an early retreat to January, to contemplating the Trinity, to contemplating eternity. Um, and I think that's going to come into play again this week, so that's why I bring it up. Now, another question, pop quiz. What stories did we look at last time? Anybody remember? Genesis. We were in Genesis. Good. And, and we looked at what stories in Genesis? The beginning. Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel, and, and, Eve. and Adam and Eve. Okay, we're going to be in Genesis again today a lot. And I really have to say, I love Genesis. I love Genesis perhaps more than um, the rest of the, New the Old Testament because the characters in Genesis are so real. They are just, they're three-dimensional, they're full-blown. And as much as I, I hate to admit it, I can really relate to Sarah, I can relate to Rebecca, I can relate to Cain. And I can relate to Abel. Um, I, I know what it's like to have sin crouching at my door. I know what it's like to have a fallen countenance. I know what it's like to have people jealous of me. That's not present either. <laughs> um, I know what it's like to, to be angry with God, to give up on God, to feel like God has let you down. So I really love these stories in Genesis. Um, so we're going to pick up with Cain and Abel, and we're going to go forward, because there's an interesting pattern that develops in Genesis and is really carried all the way through the New Testament, and it's the story of two brothers, an older brother who seems less favored than a younger brother, and um, hostility, violence, aggression that erupts between these two brothers. So the first story is really sad, 
the very first son of man becomes a murderer, right? Cain murders his brother Abel. And here I'm just going to take a little aside and say when our children were very young, um, we took a trip to Washington, D.C. and went to the Smithsonian Institute. And there we visited the Museum of Natural History. And there was a section on anthropology. And there was one exhibit <coughs> devoted to the very oldest human remains that they had found. It was a mummified body. It was the very oldest fully human intact remains that had ever been found. And guess how this person died? He was murdered. And then I was like, wow, it's Cain. There he is, an Abel. He was found with an ax blade between his backs. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Um, that's the oldest human record we have. Um, so this story continues. After Cain and Abel, we have Ishmael and Isaac. We're going to look at Ishmael and Isaac in detail today. There's competition between Jacob and Esau. The elder sons of Jacob are all jealous of the favored baby Joseph. And in the New Testament, Jesus tells us about two fictional brothers, a good older son and a prodigal younger son. And it's really interesting because I, I, I think that it's, those two sons are very important. Jesus could have made the point of grace without an older brother, right? But the older brother is in the story. And in fact, the older brother may be the audience that Jesus was telling the story to. Um, so with so many iterations on this theme, I, I think that we have to pay attention. I think that the, the, the Holy Spirit is telling us something in these stories. It's a pattern that plays out over and over and over again. And there's a dynamic in the stories which, frankly, offends our sense of justice, right? I mean, we saw it last time. <laughs> the last time we were reading the Cain and Abel story, and some of us became visibly offended, right? It's just not fair. Um, so we're going to draw some principles for these stories, and every story is unique. Every story has its own dynamics. Every story is about real people. And so we don't want to make generalizations too to take them too far. But I think there are some things we can learn that will help us in our own relationships. So in these biblical stories, like Cain and Abel, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, Joseph and his brothers, the younger brother seems um, unduly favored. There doesn't seem to be any reason for the fact that Abel's gift was picked over Cain's. We don't know. We're not told. Um, but the younger brother who lives in this favor is tempted to pride, to complacency, to lack of responsibility, to an air of superiority. He takes his favor for granted, assuming that it's because of his merit that he gets this favor, right? So a natural response, not, not a natural, that's, that's natural, that's what's natural. It's like, <laughs> the natural response is, yeah, I, I deserve this, I'm cool. Um, a mature response to unmerited favor is to ask, um, why, has God, why has God favored me? What is God doing? And what is he asking of me? That's the mature response. Sadly, we don't have very many examples of mature responses to grace you know, in the Bible. There are not many mature responses, but there are some. Um, Mary responded well to this unmerited favor. I mean, goodness, what, what favor to bear the Son of God? 
her response is, um, is, behold the handmaid of the Lord. She doesn't become proud. Her life doesn't become easy. She doesn't gloat over anyone. Um, we have, you know, David is another interesting example. The favor of God was all over David, but he did not take that as an excuse to raise his hand against Saul. He waited and waited. David was not without sin. He was not without pride. There are other stories, but um, in the early years, David received this favor with grace. John the Baptist, I think, is another interesting example. He was highly favored. He was very popular. He was. He had a strong ministry going. And he said, I, when he saw Jesus, he said, I must decrease and he must increase. So that, um, that's the younger brother, the favored brother, the unmerited favor. If we look from the point of view of the over, older brother, um, he seems unfairly overlooked. So his temptation is to jealousy, to resentment, to bitterness and aggression. His attitude is one of offense, of you took what is rightfully mine. And there's usually a subtext, at least among people of faith, as, and God, you let this happen. Why did you let this happen? That's usually the subtext when we feel um, unfavored. A mature response is to ask, why did God favor my younger brother? What is he doing and what is he asking of me? How can I support this? We don't have many of those mature responses either. And so that may be even harder. Um, perhaps we can look at Elizabeth when Mary comes to her and says, Behold, why, why has the mother of my Lord come to visit me? Um, that is a mature response, and that is born from the fact that, that Elizabeth also realized she is highly favored. She is also highly favored. She is not as highly favored as Mary. <laughs> But it doesn't matter. It's huge. It's, she has a huge gift. She has a huge gift. She has a gift that only she can give to Mary. Um, Jonathan is another example. Jonathan was the rightful king. He was in line. He was in line for the throne. And it was one of the reasons Saul was infuriated at him. He's like, don't you see this David is taking your place? And, Saul, and Jonathan knew it, and he saw it, and he loved David anyway. And that's a very, very unusual response. So one temptation which is common to both the older brother and the younger brother is a victim mentality. So when we have a victim mentality, we believe that our unique personhood is formed by the events that happen to you, by your circumstances, by the things that make you special, by the things that differentiate you from other people. So if I have a victim mentality, my thoughts and my inner conversation will revolve around events and circumstances, both positive and negative. I will be constantly comparing myself to other people. George Miley likes to talk about this a lot. He says, a victim mentality will trap me in immaturity. Immaturity can only come if I break out of my victim mentality. And that comes when I realize that my identity my worth does not come from circumstances. It does not come from events. It does not come from how I relate, you know, how, what scale I am, whether I'm better or worse than other people around me. But I begin to choose to trust and follow God. And my thoughts and inner conversations shift around God's purposes, God's gifts, God's call. 
So it's easy for us to understand and identify with the older brother's victim mentality. His offering was not accepted. He didn't know why. Or maybe he did. It's not clear from Scripture. Actually, it, it seems from Scripture that there was a path out of this. But anyway, um, it was easy for him to feel rejected. Esau's birthright was stolen. The older son in the prodigal story never got a fatted calf. It's not fair. It's very, very easy for us to think of all of the things that are not fair in our lives, right? I mean, don't, don't we have a list of them <laughs> in our heads? But the younger brother also has a victim mentality. It's perhaps a little more complex because the younger brother has experienced hostility from the older jealous brother, right? Yeah, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. That was terrible. He suffered. I mean, he suffered in jail. He suffered exile. He also suffered just the emotional scars of rejection and abandonment. He suffered. He had real wounds. Jacob um, was really threatened with death by Esau. Esau had murderous intentions towards Jacob. He fled. He left his homeland. That's not to say Jacob didn't have a part to play, right? <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> not to defending Jacob, but, but his brother was hostile towards him. The threat was real. Um, so going back to Joseph, it's interesting to me that, um, you know, Joseph had all of these dreams. He knew the favor of God on him at an early age. He dealt with it unwisely. He ended up in Egypt, and he went through a very long and complex process, but in the end, he began to realize that his favor was meant to save his family to save his brothers. That's what his favor was meant for. And it's also interesting because the Messianic line does not go through Joseph. It goes through Judah, one of his betrayers, right? It's interesting. So it's a, it's a good story to remember that our favor has a purpose. The grace we receive has a purpose, but it is not probably ultimately up for our own glorification or setting up our own kingdom. Right? So both the younger brother and the older brother harbor reasons for their offense. Both feel and both can justify the fact they have been treated unfairly or judged unfairly. Both the younger brother and the older brother blame the other one and blame God for the rift, for the, the problem. Both are stuck in a posture of alienation because both feel like the victim, and the victim always waits for an apology, right? The victim's always waiting for the other person to come and make things right because they have been offended. Well, if you're both offended, nobody's going to make the first move, right? Okay, so now, now here's where I get to teach Dan Davis's lesson. I heard this when I was young, and it really stuck with me. Dan Davis was speaking out of... Um, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if you're going to present your offering and you remember that a brother has an offense against you, go and be reconciled, and then your offering will be acceptable. So the first story says, if, um, if somebody is offended with you, if somebody is angry with you, if you have, if somebody feels that they are the victim of your um, sin, you go to them. Luke tells the story a little differently. Same Sermon on the Mount, the words go like this. If you're going to present your offering and there you remember you have offended someone else, go to them. 
<laughs> so Dan's sermon was, it doesn't matter who is right. It doesn't matter who is wrong. It doesn't matter whether you have offended. It doesn't matter whether um, they have offended you. The responsibility is on you. You bear the responsibility. Now, there are always exceptions, right? <laughs> there, are, there, are always, there are always difficulties. But um, it's important for us in our self-reflection to, to think, how, how am I feeling like a, a victim? And it's also interesting that whenever you talk about these things, the Lord always gives you a lab to work them out. <laughs> so, you know, in the, last, in the last couple of weeks, it's interesting because Thomas and I have had to deal with both these situations, one in which um, we had an offense against someone and once in which someone had an offense against us. And it's scary. It is scary. It is scary to open up those places. And there was grace in both of those places. Both of those places had grace for us um, and for the other person. Um, so, anyway, I think um, at this point, we're going to read a famous text together, which is going to touch on all of these arenas of hostility. Do we have a slide for this? Uh, I deleted it. You deleted it? Oh. <laughs> Okay. No, it's okay. Um, let's pass out those, those sheets. And I think that we're going to do it like we, we did last time. We're going to do um, a dramatic reading, or Sarah said. Okay, start us out. Read nice and loud, David. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family with her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan mm -hmm. ten years, Sarah took his wife. Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. <laughs> oh, thank you, <laughs> Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the river. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, <coughs> Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. You will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Okay, I'm going to finish the rest here. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. <laughs> so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave 
the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Okay. Um, we're going to read it again, but I'm going to, to fill in the story because my son John told me recently that I have not done a good job of telling him all the Bible stories and there's some holes in his education. So anyway, so um, for all of us who might not know, Here's the story. Um, Abram was called by God to leave his land, and the Lord told him that he would make a great nation of him. So he went out wondering with his wife Sarai, and they waited to have a baby, and they waited and they waited. Now here it says like just 10 years, 10 years that they had been in Canaan. I, what? 10 years. Um, had been living in Canaan. So is it only 10 years? Because I thought that they waited a really long time. I think it's been a long time. They were, they, so... Okay, they've been waiting a really long time to have a baby, and the baby is not coming, okay? So that's what sets this, this up. Now, what you need to know that comes afterwards is that Sarah does have a baby. She has a baby when she's 90 years old. Um, Sarah does have a baby. He ha she has Isaac, and so the Lord does fulfill his promise. But now there is a problem because there are two sons, and um, we have, we've set up an Ishmael-Isaac conflict. So we have an older son and a younger son now. We have a son who has been promised by God and a son who came about, as, as John would say, by the result of human will. Um, we have a son who is, has the promises of God and a son, another son who actually also has promises from God, but not the promise, right? We're going to read this one more time. And as we read it, you might want to make notes but I'm going to ask you some specific questions. I want to ask you, which characters in the story feel like a victim? Name, name all of the, the characters who feel like a victim. Hagar. Hagar. Okay, well, we'll read it again. I'll ask, them, I'll ask you a question again. And how does each character express hostility? How does each character shift blame? And, and here we get into just a thought experiment. What might a mature response to these circumstances have looked like? What could have gone better? That's, that's just in the realm of possibility. <laughs> in what ways was reconciliation achieved in this story? And in what ways is the hostility unresolved? Okay, so we're going to do it again. So a, new, a whole new cast of characters. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had born him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, took it, uh, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. 
It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Ber Laha Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name, the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Okay. So which character in the story feels like a victim? <laughs> All of them except the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord seems to be doing okay. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> the angel of the Lord has healed emotions, you would say, right? It's like, all right, I'm going to ask my, my junior high group back here. Okay, how does Sarai feel like a victim? Why does she feel like a victim? <laughs> okay. Okay, she feels like a victim. She hasn't had a child, and so who's to blame for that? God. God, and she says so. Does she not? <laughs> yeah. It says, um, where does it say that? So, the Lord has kept me from having children. The Lord has kept me from having children. That's curious because it was the Lord who also said that they were going to have a child, right? So there's some disconnect, some lack. There's, there's a, seriously a lack of faith. And, and you can sympathize with Sarah because it was God who showed up to Abram, not to her, at least not yet, right? Not yet. Um, okay. So Sarah feels like, who else is she the victim of? Hagar. Hagar. She feels like she's the victim of Hagar because Hagar is mistreating her. And probably, who else does she feel like the victim of? Abram. Abram, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because though she told him to do it, she wished she hadn't, right? <laughs> okay. What about, um, what about Abram? Does he feel like a victim? Yeah. Like, can't make these women happy, right? She was like, like <laughs> these women, but you told me to. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, so Abram feels like a victim here. And how, is it, how does it show up in his actions? I mean, besides, well, he's, besides he sleeps with Hagar. Okay, so there. He's complacent, yeah. So she's your, your slave. You do what you want. He's not taking, he is being passive here, very passive in this he's whole situation. He's not exercising faith. He's allowing right. Sarah to make arrangements. Uh, no. Uh, no. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this is discussion. I wonder if it if it's passivity or if it's uh, something more sinister. Oh, like what? The, um, he's obviously in a position of tension with his wife, and uh, in order to resolve that tension, what does he do? He throws a woman who he's laid with under the bus. He basically gives her to his wife to say, do what you want with her. And in a sense, yep. I mean, it's passive, he gets out of it. It's a political move to get out of it, but also he's, there's no, so what do you think his inner dialogue is regarding the promise God has made to him? Do you think there's another layer of, do you think there's fear that I've messed, I mean, well, what do you think is going on as he, as he kind of processes this in terms of God's promise and I've now got the son and, and, and if he is saying, well, she's, you know, you can do whatever you want with her, he is, he is um, essentially, right, saying that maybe this isn't the promised son. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The Lord says that Hagar was her slave. So probably. I mean, I like, I don't know how these things go. I don't, but but I would imagine. So I mean, men. He was a rich man, and I would think that during that time, men mostly handled the wealth. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, he, he wasn't, I don't think he was avoiding making the decision. I think he was allowing her to make the decision because she was her slave. But there is now this child involved. Right. And, you know, and, and later, later you're going to see this, this conflict comes up again later when Ishmael's older. Um, so so Abram, Abram and Sarai have some tension going. They do, yes. but but what I love about the story is they clearly love each other too. You know, that's not the whole story. They're they're not entirely dysfunctional. You know, <laughs> and I think um, there is a relationship here. You know, and, and I I do love that. That's comforting to me as there well. There is some fun in the dysfunction. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Yeah, he didn't. He didn't stand up and say, you know, Sarah, I, you know, I have been told by God clearly mm -hmm. that there will be a son, but I don't think this is this isn't the way that I'm mm -hmm. seeing it happen. Mm -hmm. Or even further, Sarah, your identity is beyond having a child right now. Mm -hmm. Like, who who are you in God? And there is that beautiful story. There is that beautiful story with um, I can't remember the is it Elkanah? I can't remember the, but um, Hannah's husband, who Hannah Hannah's weeping because she hasn't born a child, and basically says, "Is my love not enough for you?" And it's you know it's it's a really yeah it's it's a sweet thing. Well, you know, and the encouraging the encouraging thing about these stories is that we're all in process, right? And so the fact, the fact that Abram slept with Hagar indicates that he is probably having doubts about this prophecy, yeah. right? So Sarah is having doubts, but Abram probably is too. Yeah. So. Was it, do you think he was having doubts about the prophecy? Because as you just mentioned, the 
Yeah. Or has he decided in his line of thinking, well, maybe she's right. Maybe, maybe he has. For me, but it's not for Sarah. It may be, but in either case, there's, there's this, there is this movement. There, there's a movement here because, because this is what happens when, when Abram is presented with this situation. Later, when the Lord presents him with, with the go sacrifice your son, he is unblinking in that. And so I'm just saying, you know, there, there is a progression of faith that's come here. You know, with, to, to the man who says, well, maybe, maybe it's not going to work out the way I thought it was. To the man who says, um, the Lord is able. The Lord is able to deliver. So there, there's a progression of faith that comes. And I think the Lord is patient with us in that. Right. Yeah. Another part of that story is that was previous to this, wasn't it? When he, he had, you know, several times God promised him. And one of the times he said, oh, I have this cousin Eliezer in Damascus. Oh, yeah. Maybe, Maybe he's... That, that promised son would come through him. And God says very clearly, no, it's not through. It's not through that. Well, Eliezer, I think he was a servant, but if I'm thinking of it, the phrase where he says the promise will come from Sarah, and the name right. Sarah comes after this event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right that it does right. come after. All right, so who else um, is feeling like a victim in this story? Hagar. Hagar is feeling like Hagar is feeling like a victim in this story, um, and she is right. She is a victim. She was turned out to die. She is a victim. Um, well, but she wasn't a victim before when she despised her mistress. No, she wasn't. <laughs> but that, that, but that is that is very hard for us to remember in, in all of our circumstances when we find ourselves in in difficult circumstances. It's, it's very, very hard for us to see how we contributed to the situation. It's well, very difficult. But Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a very, very complex thing, and um, you're right. There, there's that, and then, and then there's another victim in this story. Well, Ishmael. Ishmael. He's not, he's, he's not aware of it yet, but he's sure going to grow up with it. He is going to grow up with it. He's going to get told the story, right? Um, and so, the the question. In, in my mind, and I don't know that I, I don't have an answer. But but is this the sovereignty of God that Ishmael will lay, live in hostility, or is this God saying this is the way it's going to be? Because I know, I know how your minds work. I know that your hearts are, um, are, are hard. Well, what I mean, what I meant was, to me, those are all the same thing. I mean, you know, because if God's powerful, He could have done. We believe He's powerful. We believe he's it's powerful. A it's a it, it is a mystery. We believe he's powerful, but um, I, I, there is an attitude of heart that can seem to move God's pronouncements. And we see it in Abraham. We see it in Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, and we see, you know, God makes this pronouncement, I am going to destroy them. And Abram has the tenacity to, to intercede. And you know, I'm thinking, you know, is it possible? Could the story have turned out if if Ishmael had called upon God? If Ishmael had um, had had a different attitude? You know, if, if Hagar had had. I mean, I'm I'm not saying I don't know. These are mysteries. They're too great for me. I don't know. But it's interesting how similar the this prophecy over Ishmael is to the prophecy over Cain. If you compare the two, they're very similar. You're with 
in alienation and violence and hostility with all your brothers. It's a very similar type of. And can I throw in my favorite new Bible fact? Sure. So when I was rereading these stories, preparing for the day, I had never really caught this. Esau, remember Jacob stole, stole his birthright, and then went and stole his blessing by faking that he was Esau. Right? Remember that? And so Jacob, Jacob gives, no, it's Isaac. Isaac gives Jacob the blessing. And then Esau comes in and says, hey, I'm ready for my blessing. And Isaac's like, oh, sorry, I already gave it away. And Esau gets mad, and he says, what did you, how did you bless him? And he finds out that one of the blessings was, don't go marry a Canaanite. Mm -hmm. Isaac told Jacob, thinking he was telling him, you realize that? <laughs> Which Canaanite? Ishmael's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> Isaac and Ishmael, he went, his dad told him not to do it, he went and married his dad's oh, rival's wow. daughter. Wow. Isn't that wild? Wow. Talk about hostility. Let me ask you another question. Um, in what ways was reconciliation actually achieved in this story? What? I think the Lord was reconciling, you know, Hagar to himself. Um, yes, I agree with that. Um, For me, the, the key is you know, Hagar has this beautiful moment. She says, you are the God who sees me. And I have seen the one who sees me. And to me, that is just, you know, that, that is one of those things, like, it is enough. It is enough. That is, that is enough. It doesn't matter whether I am um, the mother of the, you know, of, of the promised son. God sees me. He spoke to me. I have a place in his heart. He came to me in my misery. He cares about my misery. You know, and that, that is pretty amazing. Well, she was. Yeah, she, that, that's true. I mean, she, she came from a place of being a slave to being the mother of a nation, a great nation, many sons. You know, it, it, that is an interesting thing. So for our next, we are going to have some time. I think I'm right to um, reflect on some other questions, um, which are about our own, our own hearts. And I'm going to go back to a story that I ended up telling at the last retreat. And um, I know some of you weren't here, and I'm not going to repeat the story because it's a bit too long, but there was um, a day that I was in worship, and. And we were encouraged to ask the Lord for a gift from your treasure house. And I wasn't really all that interested in playing the game, but I decided that it would be a good sport and play the game. And, um, and so I did. So I think I've got something to show me. Go ahead. And I, I saw this like, like four-sided shield made out of these translucent wings come down on all sides of me. Um, I'm not, it was unusual because I'm not a visual person. I'm much more a, a word person, hearing person. Um, and I realized, wow, I can live in total safety in this place. And um, I began as, 
as the days and weeks went by, I realized I can step in or I can step out of this place, but it's so much better to stay in that um, I ended up just kind of remaining in this place of God's covering, of God's protection. I realized nothing can hurt me. And in this place, it doesn't matter what people say about me. It doesn't matter what people think about me because I am safe in the presence of God in this place. And, um, and I think I, I told you that, that this experience ended up changing my emotional chemistry radically. Um, though I didn't realize it was, I didn't think it was an earth-shaking thing at the time. I just thought, oh, it's an interesting little thing. It, it changed me in a significant way. And it wasn't until maybe a year later that I felt I had understanding of what was going on. And I felt like the Lord was showing me that he was, he was helping me outgrow this victim mentality. He was giving me a gift, a way out, a way out of this victim mentality. And the way out for me was to realize I can abide in his presence. I can be in God's presence. I can be in God's presence, or I can worry what people are thinking about me. But I like God's presence better. But I can't have them both. I cannot have both at the same time. I have to be one place or the other. Um, and and that, is, that is an amazing gift that, that God has given us, that he wants to be with us. He's invited us. He's made a home for us. He wants to spend eternity with us. He has a, a name, an eternal name for us. It doesn't get any better, you know? It just doesn't get any better than what God has given us. And if, the more we live in that reality, um, the more we are free from jealousy, from competition, from comparison. Um, so we're going, to, we're going to take a break right now, and we're going to have an opportunity for prayer, for journaling, for silence, for whatever we would like for 15 minutes. But I'm going to ask you a couple of questions before we go for thought. And that's, of whom are you jealous? Are you aware that you, have a, that you are jealous of someone? Are you aware that you are resenting someone? Do you have a place of resentment? Are you angry at anyone because they seem to be so favored and they obviously don't deserve it? Or are you afraid because someone is jealous of you or after what you have or angry with you? In what situations do your thoughts and inner conversations revolve around what is happening to you and how people are treating you? So I'm going to give a time of meditation and journaling. So with those questions, you feel free to move around and be quiet.